everyone. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the Communications Coordinator at High Point Church. We have been doing an Ask Me Anything time at the end of our Sunday services and answering any questions that we didn't get to in these podcast episodes. This episode covers a bunch of topics because this past Sunday, John Zekatowski preached a sermon on rooting our care in Christ, and Nick Gibson also addressed current events. Today, they are joined by Nicole Kyle, our Director of Music and Worship Arts, to talk about what we mean when we say racism, about self-care, and about using words like reckless when describing God specifically in art. As always, if you have any questions from listening to this episode, email us at podcast at highpointchurch.org. We'd love to have you join us for our future AMA times at highpointchurch.org slash live. Thanks for listening. Hey, everyone. I'm here with lead pastor Nick Gibson and the director of our kids ministries, John Sikotowski. And we're going to do an episode together and finishing up the AMA from this past Sunday which was the 7th of June. And so, it stands for Ask Me Anything. Yes, it does. So we're going to get jumping into some of these questions. We've got questions that are related to current events, questions that are specifically related to the sermon, and then um, some random questions as well. And so um, I'd like to just shout out to Curran, who often sends those random questions. Thank you, Curran. <laughs> they are thought provoking. Yeah, both both of both of these were from him. So yeah. <laughs> so um, why don't we start with the sermon questions, and then we'll work sermon and random, and then we'll end on the current events. Does that sound good to you guys? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. All right. So John, you were with us. You preached this past Sunday. Mm-hmm. You taught us how Satan hates our faith and how our faith needs friends. And um, so let's jump into this question. This says, how do we balance being a friend and reaching out with godly self-care? Is that even a mm-hmm. biblical thing? How do we know when we're burnt out versus being self-centered or lazy? Yeah. So this is, um, I think some of the answer to this question is similar to one of the questions that we addressed on Sunday, which um, I can't remember what the specific wording of that one was, but it was basically like, how do we how do I like make space for this in my life when I come back from coronavirus? And I think um, a lot of the stuff, a a lot of the answer to this question is similar. So it's, um, I think a lot of our burnt outnesses and our being self-centerednesses do come from a real, um, from a real lack of, of godliness in our lives. And in a, like that there is a, there's a real way in which if we were to chart out all of the time that's in our lives, like there is, there's a lot of time that's being used for things that aren't producing, that aren't producing mm-hmm. substance and that aren't being used for, for the kinds of things that, that God would be concerned about. Um, right. so I think, so I think the, the first, the first question to look at when, okay, how do we balance being a friend and reaching out with godly self-care? I think the first question to look at is, um, is that question of godly self-care? Like what are, what are the kinds of things like Mm. Nicole, I know you've talked about before, um, how you were, you were experiencing this time where you were like, just, just noticing yourself watching a lot of TV. And when, when you thought about that, you realized the ways that like, not only was that stealing from, the specific time at the time, but it was also stealing from the next day. It was stealing from relationships the next day. Yeah. And Nick, you've talked about some in the escaping Babel series about how like the, the times where we steal from our time now, we're also stealing from our future selves. So I think, um, I think a, an, a way to start this is with a strong, 
um, is with a strong like theology of stewardship and a strong theology of, of the way that we are required yeah. to steward our time and what that means for how we should be using it and the things that we should be, that we should be doing to, to grow the strength of our character, to be growing our godliness, to be growing, to be doing things that are more soulish rather than as Nick likes to, the word he likes to use glandular. Um, so I think, so I think the beginning, I think some of the beginning of this question is, is, finding places to do godly self-care so things like prayer things like attending to the scriptures things like things like doing um doing hobbies that more connect you to um to like your your body and to um to your soul and to the ways that god is working in you so as opposed to as opposed to watching a show like doing something that's going to get you outside or working with your hands or creating something um so I think that's I think that's some of the start of the answer to this question is how you yeah. balance some of those things is you do start to look look at your life and look at it critically and be willing to say okay if I actually like I, I remember one of the one of the activities that I would do oftentimes in college with some of the guys I was discipling is I would give them a a week um, I would give them a, a paper that was an entire week broken down by fifteen minute increments and I would say okay for the next week you're going to track all of your time, all of it in every, in 15 minute increments so that you can get an idea of what are the ways that you're actually using your time. And then we can look back at that and say, okay, like when I'm actually ruthless about paying attention to the kind of time that I'm spending on different things. Yeah. I realized I spent, you know, 16 hours this past week watching TV or this time that I said I was quote unquote studying in the library. Like, yeah, I was in the library for six hours, but 45 minutes, 45 minutes of it was actually spent on studying and the other five hours were spent on social media, talking to people, things like that. So, um, I think that's a place to start. I think that's a place to start is to be, is to really take a look at your own life and take a look at, okay, what are, how are the ways I'm spending my time and are they producing the kinds of things that I want them to produce? Because as you, as you pursue the kinds of things that are good for, for the state of your soul, for the health of your soul, for your growth in godliness, like that's going to create more capacity within you to, to do the kinds of things in, um, in reaching out to our friends and in strengthening, strengthening the faith of one another that we feel like we so desperately lack. Mm-hmm. Um, Nick, did you have any thoughts you wanted to add to that? Yes. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think it is important to recognize that, um, there is a biblical doctrine of godly self-care, which is usually wrapped up in the Sabbath command. Mm -hmm. But, um, most, most any area of thought can be easily infected with worldliness. And most of the talk of decompression and stuff like that is re- is really just worldliness, right? And so this the idea that like, well, I had a hard day. I need to decompress for two hours watching TV at night. That's not true. It, what people do need to recognize is, is that um, as you grow in sanctification, to the extent to which you aren't godly, godliness is exhausting. Right? It's just like running. If you're not mm-hmm. in shape to run, it's exhausting really fast. And if you're not in shape in your soul, then godliness is exhausting. And so you feel exhausted trying to do what's good or what's right or what's truthful or whatever. And as you grow in godliness, it becomes less exhausting. And you realize that it was fragility and weakness mostly that made things so difficult that you had to rest from your good work. Mm -hmm. So 
so I, so I think I think misapprehensions about what our life is for, what our life is about, what is wholesome, what's not wholesome, all those kinds of things have, have to get worked out. And I don't think they're that hard to work out, but I think that you need to work them out. Otherwise, you'll you'll very easily slip into basic worldly ideas about what it means to rest, and it will usually include a flickering screen. Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah, and it is it really is a people just don't appreciate how much they do not keep track of how much time they're staring at a screen and how much time flies away while they do such things Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and how, how big a proportion of their waking hours that is it's, it it is, I would say one of the, it's one of the five big epidemics of our age. Yeah. There's a, there's a a way on iPhones that you can track your screen time and it'll Mm -hmm. tell you how much time you're using your phone and how many times you pick it up a day. And the first time that I started doing it, it'll give you an update every week. And I was shocked at what I got. And it, and it was a really helpful, I mean, I, I recommend using that tool if you have an iPhone. I don't, I'm not sure if other phones have that on them. They probably do. But There um, are comparable apps you can download for Android. Yeah, um, it's it's very helpful. It's helpful. It's sobering. And then it helps you understand, okay, if this is my reality, what do I need to change? How can I address this? Mm-hmm. And I find that to be really helpful. I think one of the things in here, speaking to some of what you were saying, John, it the second half of this question says, how do we know when we're burnt out versus being self-centered or lazy? I I think too, that some of that is a a confusing of what's causing you to feel these different things. I I mean, Nick, you alluded to that as well, but the past, um, a couple weeks ago, I was feeling pretty, I was feeling depressed. Um, I've been fighting that for maybe like six months. And, um, I just eventually through, by the end of the week realized I was consuming a ton of media. I was reading news articles constantly. I was on my phone or on my computer constantly because I, I would like, it was easier for me to just disengage with my reality and do those things. But those are the things that were actually making me feel burnt out. It wasn't that they were helping. They were making me feel worse. And then when I realized, okay, this is, this is terrible. This is not helping me. This needs to stop and change. What are the things I need to do to, to feel different from how I feel right now and to spend my time in a more God honoring way that was not godly self care. And so instead I was using that time to be reading my Bible and praying and going on a run because when I was on a run, I had to feel like I was living in the present. I couldn't just have my mind elsewhere because I was physically running in that moment. And so in those, in doing those things, not only did I get back some of my time, but I got back some of my energy. And so I didn't Mm -hmm. feel like I was so burnt out. And I I actually Mm -hmm. could spend more time caring for my son or caring for a friend or engaging in my marriage. So some of that confusion, we've got to sort that out too. Like the things that we think are helping are really the things that are making us feel worse. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really important, especially in relationship to media. It's, It's important to recognize some people think that because they're not watching The Office for the 19th time, on Netflix because they're reading news articles that they're doing something productive on their screen. And I just, I will really want to caution you because there's this progressive bumper sticker you see in Madison. Um, If you're not angry, you're not paying attention, you know, which there's truth to that. But at the same time, it's partly because all of the news sources are designed to make you angry Mm -hmm. and, and upset and fearful and, to get a emotional hit out of you. And, and almost none of it is history or is going to be significant tomorrow. There's no possible way for you to take it all in and categorize it properly and proportionately so that you really understand the world you live in. 
you're always going to be relying on the analysis of other people who are experts in those fields. And so really all you're doing is torturing yourself. Right. And that's just not a good idea. For a lot of people who find themselves depressed or anxious, cutting yourself off from all of those things, spending time with friends and doing things like going for runs and praying and doing things that I think would you would say have an immediacy and a wholesomeness to them. Mm-hmm. And that, like John said, are fully embodied. They're not virtual. They're fully embodied. That you make those transitions, it's, it's amazing how dramatic the improvements can be over a short period of time. Yeah. So I guess... Um, to the final part of the question, like, I don't know, Nick, if you have any thoughts on this, um, of how, how to know the distinction specifically between, okay, I am, I'm burnt out because I'm legitimately, I'm doing the things I need to do. I'm trying really hard to reach out to my friends. Like I'm, I'm doing the things and I've gotten burnt out from that versus how, how can we, like, how can that be distinguished from I'm being self-centered slash lazy? Yeah, I mean, part of the issue here is I am trying to respect the fact that there's like 12 questions we're supposed to answer. (laughs) And this is like, this is a huge and complex teaching in itself. I think the first issue is whether or not you're looking at the thing rightly. If if you're confused about the meaning of something, it will affect you emotionally in a really deep way. Usually it's if you think you're being ill-used, if you think that you're suffering an injustice, Mm. then it is very, so one of the reasons why people over the course of human history have often not looked at certain things that are unjust as oppressions as the normal way that they look at it is because if you just think of yourself as oppressed all the time, even if you literally are oppressed all the time, it's just psychologically unhealthy. It's just Hmm. very damaging and taxing and exhausting. Um, You see this in the, in the present moment where people are talking about racial justice in America. It's, you know, trying to find the right state of mind, depending on where you are and who you are in this thing that's actually emotionally healthy, but also productive is very difficult Yeah, because if you're not focused on something and angry about it, it's very easy to not be motivated enough to take the necessary steps to change. But if you are in a per- perpetual state of being upset, it's incredibly oppressive to the human spirit, no matter what it is. Mm-hmm. So I, I think the first thing is like, so for example, there, there are some, some of us who like, we feel ill used to have to do the dishes at night. It just, it just is beneath, it feels beneath us. It's just, I'd rather do every, anything else. And it just keeps happening. I don't know how this keeps happening. And it just is. Um, now, if you have a bunch of kids and they are ill-using you by not being responsible and cleaning their own dishes, then you need a chore schedule and blah, blah, blah. But if it's just part of the repetitions of life, mm-hmm. you might just as well get angry about having to take a shower most days. Mm-hmm. Right? Like it, It's just part of the repetition of wholesome human life. So part of it is just, are you looking at it the right way? Um, I know a lot of men who we work, who work really hard, you know, who are, I, I work a lot of hours and when I get done working, there's this natural feeling of entitlement that I have that I want to do what I want to do. Cause I just spent my whole day working for my family to provide for them. If I didn't have a family, I wouldn't do this job. I don't ha- I wouldn't have to make this much money. I wouldn't have to do all this. I could, I would live in a trailer and I would drive a pickup <laughs> truck and I wouldn't need to make this kind of money to support mm-hmm. this family. So I, when I'm done with my work, uh, I can't have another woman. So what do I, what do I want to do? Like I want to do stuff that I want to do, right? But that's actually not my lot in life. After having worked all day to, to provide for my family, I need to spend most of the rest of my free time caring for and being part of my family, mm-hmm. right? And if I think that that's unreasonably unreasonable and causing me to be ill-used, then I'll be upset and frustrated all the time I'm with my family and I'll find it very draining rather than saying, I worked all day so that I can have this family. 
and support this family. And now the great joy of my life is to be able to come home and be with this family. Right. Obviously it gets complicated if your kids hate your guts and things like that. But um, <laughs> one way to get your kids to hate your guts is to act like right. you're being ill used to be around them at night. You know? Right. So right. I think, I think mindset is enormous in this way more than people think. I think if you get your mindset right and you can embrace what's really part of your life, then it's not as draining and you can embrace it when you do that. It produces joy rather than anger. You don't feel drained. You don't feel burned out, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But you have to expect, accept the fact that you're not important. You're not going to be a celebrity. You're going to live and die and no one's going to remember you. And you're, this is part of the nature of the repetitive life that God has given all flesh that like grass, you know, is gone in a day. And like you, you just have, you have to have a certain sense of your mortality and your place in the universe. I know that sounds kind of abstract, but there's nothing as stressful as thinking that you're not going to die mm. or age. I mean, I, I know people as a pastor who just haven't come to terms with the fact that they're going to age mm-hmm. and it destroys their life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, so I think mindset is enormous, is enormous here in, in understanding yeah. the gospel and understanding us as ourselves as human beings and so on. Yeah. And then, and then understanding the nature of Sabbath and rest. But yeah. scripture seems to teach that we can work six days really hard rest and think about God one day right. and be healthy. Right. That's what it seems to teach. Yeah. And I think, I think when things are going, when I, right. When I, when I'm embracing my life as wholesomely as I, as I can, that seems to be true for me is like when I'm working hard for six days and then resting well, doing the kind of things that are going to like recharge, like me specifically temperamentally and me specifically in my relationship with God. Um, that it works and it feels it feels really good. Like it feels good to be able to be like, okay, I'm 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 able to produce and also to to spend time reconnecting with God and refreshing. I'm gonna move us on to the next question, but I yep. do think that um, substance for whoever asked this question, that might be a good place for you to to go um, mm-hmm. if you want to hear more about this. Which is a book written by Nick Gibson. Which is a book written by our very own Nick Gibson. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's go on to the next question. I'm going to ask you guys to be um, more concise in these ones. So <laughs> not that they're import- less important, but we got to move on. Okay. Uh, this one I'm going to direct to you, Nick. What does it mean to eat the bread of eat the bread or drink the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner in 1 Corinthians 11, 27? Okay. So I'll, I'll be really brief. The, the, the answer is to eat the so it's called the Lord's Supper in that context. And that possessive doesn't is not a possessive of referent. So it's not a suff, a supper that refers to the Lord. It's a possessive of ownership. That is, this sub this supper literally belongs to Jesus. This is his supper. You got invited to his supper, right? So um acting like you shouldn't act when you're at his house for his supper is fundamentally what this passage is about, which in this particular case in 1 Corinthians is not treating people with proper equality and equal access to the Lord's Supper who have different positions in life. So it talks about people, you know, eating and getting drunk before anybody else gets there, um, eating all the food. So so mm-hmm. like if you, you know, if you are a really well, relatively wealthy person, you might be able to get there at 5 p.m. You know, you're hanging out with the other people who aren't slaves. Slaves have to work till dark. They get there after dark. It's 8 p.m., food's all gone, you know, and then you take communion together at the end of the love feast and they're not, they ate nothing, but they were the ones most in need, right? It's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's a, 
it's disgusting. Like what Paul is saying is that's disgusting what you're doing. And when you do that, um, you eat the Lord's, the supper that's the Lord's. Like you, you think you can walk, you like you literally, I mean, this goes back to just, you're, you're entering his house. Like it's, it's literally his supper. So I mean, imagine sure. if I came over to your house when you were having like five guests mm-hmm. and three of the guests were a little bit late and I ate all of the hors d'oeuvres yeah. <laughs> that you'd like worked all day to put out for people. And I was like, well, I'm a guest, whatever, you know, and I, I had just had no interest in anybody else you had invited to your house for this gathering. I mean, that, in some ways that's kind of what was happening. And, and in first Corinthians, clearly God is very upset by that. Mm-hmm. So the context is a kind of, you could call it a kind of social justice. You could kind of, a, a, a sort of being interested in equity within the act of communion in the shared supper within the church. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but it's but it's connected to the fact that there there is you have not recognized that Jesus is the host of this supper. You think because you brought food, you're the host, but you're not. Yeah. And in doing so, you profane Jesus' feast, mm-hmm. and it's disgusting. And he does something about it. And it's that it, do, acting this way is very dangerous mm-hmm. to your soul, or or at least your physical life. So Nick, I'm going to ask you a question about the follow-up to this. So we don't yes. we don't practice the Lord's Supper in the same way as right. the churches that Paul was writing to did. Mm-hmm. Is there some sort of uh, an equivalent to the type of thing this might speak to in our church today? Like an, just an example or or a way that we do this sort of thing when we don't think about it. I, yeah, I don't want to make too flip into comparison. Yeah. Um, just, just because like our church doesn't literally include slaves. I mean, like, like there's, we think we live in an unjust society and, and I, and I have no, uh, no pretensions that there is an injustice in every human society, including ours. But so I think sometimes people don't have a strong sense of proportion about what it meant to be a Roman slave and what it meant to be a Roman gentleman. And the incredibly profound differences. But I do think, yeah, I think when we take something that belongs to God and act like it's ours and don't don't offer other people access to it, it's the same dynamic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do think, though, there is something special about the ritual of communion itself. That it, it has a, a sort of heightened sacredness mm-hmm. in a way in that that um, one of the reasons this was so profane was because it that was that was because it was communion. Yeah. yeah it was mm-hmm. this special shared single yeah. ritual that, that was a gift from the Lord himself and hosted by the spirit of the Lord himself. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I think, yeah, we can replicate this dynamic of not including our brothers and sisters in right. lots of ways. Sure. But I'd want to be careful about drawing too tight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yep. It does. All right. John, I'm going to ask you this next question. Excellent. What is your opinion of calling God's love reckless in the song Reckless Love? And this person specifically is saying reckless love. It isn't the only song that refers to God's love as reckless. Mm -hmm. But it is maybe the trendiest one. Right, right. Um, I think there is a way in which calling God's love reckless gets at something emotionally that I think is um, 
is potentially helpful to attribute to God, to attribute this like this costliness of his love, this like how much it has done, how much it matters for me, how much how much he had to spend in order to do it. But I think um, I do think that the word reckless is an inaccurate word to describe God's love. Like, I, I don't think that he like there's I like an example to this would be or a uh, uh, an additional example of something like this would be like when mm-hmm. people call God's love risky, like, Oh, he, you know, he, he's his risky love in like sending his son to die. And it's like, there's a way in which that gets at something emotionally of like, right. It, it costs God something. It, he had to do a lot in order to, in order to save people. And it was at great cost to himself. And that gets at something emotionally that I think is that that emotional thing I think is helpful to give to give to God as, as an attribute of God. But I, I think both of those words are, are inaccurate words to describe it. Like God was not, God was not reckless in that. Like he, he didn't know what the outcome was going to be or that he, he was just sort of trying something and see if, seeing if it was going to work. And he's not risky in that. It's like, Oh, he's, he's putting some, he's putting some cost up and he's hoping to see a return later. Um, so I think, um, I think it can be helpful to instead um, to instead redefine those words in in different ways and to to like to see the kinds of emotions that are trying to be tapped into with words like that and mm-hmm. instead use those emotions to deepen different theological categories. So like to deepen the the costliness of God's love or to deepen um the like yeah how much of a sacrifice it was for for jesus to to come and to die and on our behalf and um i think there are there are different ways to deepen those categories rather than to rather than to try and push it into a sort of a different emotional category that i don't think is that i don't think exactly describes what is what is happening mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on so, I mean, part of it is that this is a, this is a song, it's a piece of art, but it's mm-hmm. also a song that's used in churches as a worship song. Mm-hmm. What are, I, this to, is for, to declare, to declare our faith. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So what are, for, this is for either of you. How do you think that plays into the conversation about whether or not we should use a word like reckless when describing God's love? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's important to recognize that in the English language, the etymology of the word reckless means careless, thoughtless, and heedless. That is, doing an action without thought or care as to its consequences. So it's an inherently negative word and a word that refers to behavior that is inherently irresponsible and thoughtless. Now, over the years, people have, you know, people use words differently, and over time, their definition can change slowly. And so, there, there may come a time where people start using the word reckless ambiguously like that. I think one of the things that I would say goes to, is a credit to the song, is that there is one parable that Jesus teaches that I know of in which he seems to be intentionally making the character seem reckless out of love. And that mm-hmm. is the 99 in one. That mm-hmm. for a shepherd to have lost a sheep mm-hmm. and for him to leave the 99 after the one. However... Even that, even that, when Which, Jesus says it, when Jesus says it, he doesn't, he, people have interpreted it that way, but I, 
I think when Jesus actually says it, he he seems to be saying, well, isn't it obvious that that's what a shepherd would do? Because the 99 aren't in danger. Mm-hmm. And the one is. And so when you leave the 99 to go find the one, the 99 don't become immediately endangered, right? But they they could be. So mm-hmm. so I, I and I, I don't think that's a crazy interpretation that you are endangering in some sense the 99. You're in some way risking them. And in that sense, going after the one could be seen as in some sense reckless. That is not taking, not deciding that, well, I have to protect the 99. I can't go after the one. It would, that would be imprudent. But for, for this person goes, I'm going to go find the one and I'm going to leave the 99 here. Mm-hmm. That could sound reckless. Which is also way. the, I mean, the passage that he sings about in the song. Right. Right. And I think because that passage is in the song that that's helpful. Mm-hmm. I do, however, think that, you know, to use a word that has a pretty normal meaning that is negative in that sense, um, is maybe not be as, maybe not be as worshipful as people hoped. Um, and, or could you, and, or th- part of the issue here is that you're right. It's art and American, normal American people are really bad at interpreting art. Mm. They take it really literally in ways they sh- probably shouldn't. And so using evocative words that are not meant literally can get at emotional things that are really helpful because it get places in us more careful words might not ignite. Mm-hmm. And yet they also could leave the wrong impression. And I think that's one of the things that John is getting at. Like, mm-hmm. But I do recognize artistically speaking, if you use a quote, more accurate word, right, it may not evoke a certain place in the human emotion that the song is seeking to ignite. And I think mm-hmm. that that's, important because we want our art to ignite the deepest things in us we possibly can. Mm-hmm. And I think recognizing that God's love is, has this kind of wild pursuant, um, unfazable passion to it. Mm-hmm. It has to be believed by people who are wretched. And I think the desire of these folks to try to paint the love of God in such a way as to help the wretched believe that God will pursue them as far as it, as they need to be pursued to be saved, I think is helpful. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I'm a little torn about that song. Yeah. Um, this is okay. I'm going to just drive it a little bit further because I'm very interested in these conversations as well. Nick, you're familiar with the Rich Mullins song, The Love of God, which also also refers to his love as reckless. Do you think about those differently in their context? Because that the lyric in that one is, I mean, this refrain comes back a couple of times, but this in this spot, it says, in the reckless raging fury that they call the love of God. Um, I mean, I've always... I've always... Um, yeah, I mean, in some ways I have always kind of, um, thought those words were both problematic and incredibly touching. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I think that was the point. Right. Mm-hmm. Both for Rich Mullins and for the, the present author of the other, Corey other Asprey. song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. We don't need to go further into it, but I I think yeah. I was just having a conversation with my husband Scott about this last night. Like, I can tend to be a principle driven person, 
and he is often more apt or more prone to consider a particular situation. And so I, I think it's it's important that even in conversations about art and which lyrics are going to be chosen, it doesn't mean that it's always the same every time. And that there are some principles that we can think about when we're thinking about art, specifically art that's describing God. But it might there might be things that make each one unique or maybe not. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. all right. I do like the song in Rich Mullins' song where he talks about the fury of the love of God. Mm-hmm. But yeah, what he says, reckless, raging fury, that's twice as bad as the present example, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think that, I think that that was very intentional. And I think, yeah. and I, I think that, I, I think that part of the importance here is, is that, you know, Rich, Rich Mullins struggled with alcoholism his, almost his entire life, mm-hmm. partly because of incredibly deep wounds in his relationship with his father and was friends with Brendan Manning and about, and he t- partly dealt with his struggles by believing that God's love was so unrelenting and furious in its passion mm-hmm. that it could not be stopped by the wretchedness of man, right. whether his own. And then he also lived among Native American tribes who were incre- incredibly decimated on reservations. He just, mm-hmm. he lived with them. Mm-hmm. And so he also lived in the midst of what we would consider systemic injustice, mm-hmm. right? And those two things, his own personal wretchedness and his own experience of systemic injustice, and then sharing, I mean, alcoholism is rampant on some of these reservations, and it was something that he dealt with himself. And so right. it, having a shared experience of wretchedness with these folks made him attune something to the horror of living in a world full of wretched people. And so when you when you grapple with that, then you have to have some artistic way of recognizing that the love of God is not calculating mm-hmm. at its heart. Because if it's a calculation that saves or damns us, it's very hard to believe that we're not damned. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You have to, right. in some sense, believe imaginatively that God's love has this record. I would, ra- if somebody said, do you know how, re- if it's something, this is how wretched you are. And they explained it so that I was really sensible of it. And then they said, do you want a God who calculates in his love? Or do you want a God whose love is a reckless raging fury? Mm-hmm. I would say, I will take the latter. Thank you. Right. <laughs> yeah. There's a, a post on Facebook that Corey Asbury wrote in defense of his lyric because he's gotten a lot of criticism of it. He talks mm-hmm. a little bit about that, that like he said to get personal, this is about my experience of God's love for me and I didn't mm-hmm. deserve a single bit of it. And he gave it to me. I th- and I think for me that yeah. there are a handful of lyrics that may not be as precise or as accurate to like the specific etymology of the word or the the specific right. like we yeah. get into conversations about denotation and connotation but i think that what you brought up john that i think is part of what art and music are intended to do is that they help us to evoke the emotions that we otherwise repress or don't want to think about right. and there's an ability that art has to do that that just thinking doesn't always have or conversations sometimes don't even have either. But when we experience it in the context of art, in the context of music, which does something to our souls, when we listen to it, it helps us to understand how we ought to feel about something like God's love for us mm-hmm. that I find helpful. Yeah. In some sense, it's, it's, only, it's just the difference between analysis and prose. Yeah. One writing is to clarify and the other writing is to, evoke provoke yeah right. and mm-hmm. right and i think yeah I, I i mean i do i do take a little annoyance at asbury's statement that you know i was you know i didn't deserve it but you know god was so you i feel like if you're gonna say the raging reckless love of god or the reckless love of god you you need to be in touch with the fact that you're horrifying 
Like if you just say, well, I didn't deserve it. Or, you know, I'm not perfect. I, I feel like words like the reckless raging love of God are the kind of words that fit a person who believes that they are truly wretched. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's important to recognize it's, it's to get a proportionate balance yeah. in the, the, the love of God with the sin of man, with the image of God in man. Mm-hmm. That, th- yeah. that those are, are bigger, deeper, stronger, more terrifying. There's something about secularity and technology and capital, you know, consumerism that just sucks the life and contour out of everything. Mm-hmm. And um, art is meant to give some of that back, you know, yeah. but it, but you have to have the valley in relief to the mountaintop where it just looks like a hill. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Right. All right, let's move on. We've gotten through sermon questions or random questions. We're going to move on to some questions about current events. We Yeah, here we go. <laughs> All right. So, um, Nick, I'm going to probably just direct most of these to you. And, John, if you want to jump in, if I'm going to jump in, we can. But I'm going to direct most of these to you, Nick. All right. Can you please clarify your remarks about the difference between Christian, Christian tourism and the significant short-term missions that High Point teams do? Yeah, I really appreciate how this person assumed that the other short-term things that we do at High Point were significant. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So there are some, okay, so I, I, I'll make three distinctions. One is there are some Christian mission trips that are just not that thoughtful about what is toxic charity and what makes a real difference and what mm-hmm. is just us wanting to go on a trip. And th- so there are some very well-meaning Christians who go on mission trips, they call them, and they actually do harm rather than good, or they, they don't do good, anything that makes any difference. And... Um, it's just a, a misunderstanding of how charitable work leads to empowerment or change or whatever, right? Um, and those people aren't to be hated. They're just to be engaged mm-hmm. with, I guess, or something like that. Right? The second is um, trips that we go on that are, are really designed to affect the person going, mm-hmm. not to have create lasting spiritual change or other change where we're going. So, so these would be like vision trips, mm-hmm. right? You, you might go and and tour country or something to see things right and another could be like a youth group trip to some part of mexico where you're gonna like paint a church or something and um you you really didn't create very significant lasting change um but you you know you had like this extended youth retreat basically that cost Mm -hmm. fourteen hundred dollars per kid i don't know if that's bad I mean, I think if you think that you're some kind of hero, then you know it could get real self-involved and self-righteous. But I don't think that it's bad to go on a vision trip or it's bad to go on something where you're not really making a lot of lasting change, so long as you know that. Mm-hmm. Um, because it can still be really transformative to come to travel internationally, mm-hmm. to recognize the body of Christ is international, to come in contact with real poverty, um, to to all that's involved, to, you know, get away from your screens and to get away from some of the, your influences and the TV that you watch and to like immerse yourself in the work of God in another place in the world for a week can be very transformative, especially to young people. And so I would still call that in a way, like you might call that not, maybe not Christian tourism, but like, like going to missions camp or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. And then I would say there are short-term trips that are embedded in well-structured long-term works usually, but that are that are they understand the principles of charitable work and how it really leads to empowerment and long-term results. And that where we usually where we partner with people who are doing a broader work 
and we are actually helping rather than hurting. So, for example, um, there are teams that go to the Ukraine and they do an English camp that's connected with the international version of InterVarsity, where students from all over um, the former Soviet Union can come and, like, a lot of mostly students from Ukraine can come and, like, learn English and practice it while studying the Gospel of Mark and while doing all these things, right? Mm hmm. Because it's part of that long, larger ministry, because these students can get connected to university groups um, or IFCS or whatever it is in their country at, well, after they're done, it, it, the people who go on that short-term experience are part of a larger ministry that has continuity and that is contextualized to the needs of the people and students in that particular context. In that case, the short-term trip can be very helpful. I also know there are, there's a, a counselor couple that goes to High Point. Um, uh, the Eastons, uh, Dave Easton just passed away recently and they would go on mission trips to the Middle East or to Southern Europe and missionaries would come and they would do like counseling with them for like a week. Hmm. So for the Eastons, it was a short-term trip, but they were offering, offering counselors to term missionaries, counseling to term missionaries, which was very helpful for them to deal with all the psychological issues that could come up with in, while being a missionary. So there are all kinds of versions of short-term trips. Um, like I like the ones I take to India. I'm on the board of a ministry. I need to get there and see stuff and see what's going on, get to know people. Um, but I'm not I'm not the bread and butter of ministry, and never can be, mm-hmm. right? But that kind of partnership is helpful. It's helpful for those people to see me. I I, always, I keep asking Manohar, is it really helpful for me to go? Is it really helpful for me to go? And he keeps saying, yes, it is. It's very helpful. And there were, there were some situations where the fact just the fact that I was white opened up an opportunity for Manohar to preach the gospel. Mm-hmm. Like we were just mm-hmm. Rachel and I were playing volleyball by a school mm-hmm. in this place in India where you n- no white people go, you know? And it was just so weird. All of a sudden Americans show up out of nowhere and they like, some of these people had never seen an American not on TV. Yeah. Like, and, and this is not like, this was not like the Bush. Like this was a, this was a town of like 2 million people, but it's like, it's not where a tourist would go and it's not right. where a businessman would go. So they've mm-hmm. like, you know, and they're like, oh my gosh, who are you? This is fun. And so we played volleyball with them for a couple hours. And then because I was there, Manohar got to talk with them and then mm-hmm. we got to do something in their school. And then mm-hmm. he got to preach to the whole school. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like in a Hindu nation, he got to preach to all these Hindu kids. Right, like, right. It's, not like, it's not like doing this in Uganda where they're like mm-hmm. nominally Christian and you could preach the gospel in a school and it's fine because it's part of the established religion. No, this is like in a Hindu school. They're like, please, because because once I opened the door, then Manohar was seen as this like extremely successful person. Sure. Once they got to know him a little bit more, and then that created open door. So there are ways in which something as cheap as my race or nationality could be used as a tool yeah. to open doors. So sometimes that happens. Yeah. So anyway, I, I would say those three categories, and I don't think any of them are morally wrong, unless you don't know what you're doing. And you're causing harm. You don't want to do that. Christian tourism as like Christian camp for young people is fine. But with a little bit more effort, I think you can do a more meaningful trip, even with youth. I remember when I was in, when I was a youth pastor, we did two trips. One was to Ensenada where we basically did like vacation Bible school and we did like miming on the streets and it seemed to have no effect at all whatsoever and be a complete waste of time as far as I could tell. But a bunch of kids made deeper commitments to Christ Right. On the compound that week. So it was like Christian camp. Another trip we took with same youth kids. We went to Juarez, Mexico, but we went to a place where youth groups usually don't go mm-hmm. because we were working with a group that was there long term. Yeah. And we literally built a church from scratch that seated like 160 people. Hmm. So we literally built a building in a week. Yeah. Stucco, wire, 
framing, roof, everything, mm-hmm. right? And we worked our butts off. It was exhausting. And we worked with the people in that part of Juarez. We learned a lot about what was going on there. And like that mattered. We went back two, three, four years and they were using that church and that church was a hub of ministry in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And the pastor was like, man, you has, you cannot, I cannot explain how this has changed my ministry. And the difference was about $4,000 for the cost of the trip because we had to, you know, build the, the church. Yep. But I know other youth groups that go and they, they'll paint a church for the fourth time that summer because mm-hmm. other youth groups have come and painted the same church. You know what I mean? So it doesn't take that much more work if you partner. But the difference is, is we didn't just go on the blah, 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 whatever trip that's cheap. And that has this like an American person that goes with you down with you. And it's like, we, we partnered with a long-term ministry in Mexico. Yeah. Who could actually isolate something that would be of real good. And we did that. Yeah. Yeah. So. Great. Great. All right. Let's go to the next question. Um, okay. I'm going to jump to, yeah, I'll read this one here. What are your thoughts about marching with a hundred, if not over a thousand people that is allowed in a constitutional freedom of assembly without physical distancing. While, however, the church cannot open fully, even though the people across both would be about the same, but both are not currently allowed in Madison. What would allow participation in one to be biblical while the other is not? I mean, I, I think the short answer is that under public health order number four, the march isn't legal. People just do it. And then they dare the government to enforce it. And they don't. I mean, I think that's the difference. I think the, the, I think the church of churches voluntarily comply um, and try to work around those limitations. Mm-hmm. I, I got a text from somebody that said, so the protesters can gather, but Protestants won't. Yeah. Right. I had somebody else and, text me and say, hey, we can open the church apparently like with a loophole as long as we call it a protest. Yeah. 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 Listen, I think I'm actually one of the essays I'm, I'm working on writing is, is comparative uh, and contextual, are comparative contextual arguments useful in the discussion about justice? Right. And this gets to that whole thing. Like when you start comparing one thing to another thing, that's somewhat like it and somewhat different. Right. Um, People get really upset about those kinds of arguments. And yet in some cases, I mean, they're comparative arguments. Like people make comparative arguments all the time. Mm -hmm. And it's our emotion that makes us really upset about them. And so it's true that these protests are creating a special place for themselves and doing things that other people aren't allowed to do. And they're presuming the right to do so. And they believe they have the right to do it because it's important. Right. Similarly to why you can buy plumbing items in Home Depot, but not go to church for a while because, you know, getting a a new flushing unit was important, but going to church was not. Right. I I, mean, before the protesting, I heard similar things like, oh, let's just meet in Home Depot and then we can have church. So it's not just the protesting that's that's bringing these these comments. Right. Right. And so – yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's a fair observation. I mean, it is a fact that, I mean, we were not socially distanced. I mean, I was at the march. People were not socially distanced. Um, a lot of people did wear masks mm-hmm. and it, it didn't appear to be for nefarious reasons. People were, were trying to make it as healthy as possible. And there was some distancing, but, but no, I mean, this was not, it was not legal under that order. Um, nor do I think that the city of Madison should have tried to try to enforce it. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I don't think that either. 
you know, so, so I don't know. I, yeah, it's a fair, that is a fair comparative argument. It is hypocrisy that you can have protests and you can't have church. And it is rooted in the secular bigotry that everything is more important than spiritual gatherings mm-hmm. and worship that happens at them. I actually posted something, um, I think yesterday to my Twitter account that said, I know this isn't the point right now that everybody's focused on, but this is happening. And it was about the fact that Justice Roberts joined the liberal majority, liberal minority of the court um, in relationship to um, a decision about churches and that it was okay. Essentially that, w- that what's presumed in his argument is that it's okay to treat churches as, as all other mass gatherings, mm-hmm. that that's reasonable when the ex- the exercise of religion is protected in the first amendment mm-hmm. and other mass gatherings are not. Mm-hmm. And it also, and the, the reason why this is a problem is, is that once you say church gatherings are other, the same as other mass gatherings. Now, um, the secular authority gets to decide which of those gatherings now have priority, right? So mm-hmm. now we're at the mercy of whether or not they think what we do is valuable. Well, of course they don't think the worship of the almighty God is a fundamentally socially valuable thing. They laugh at it. They think it's idiotic. So the idea that you can go buy a toilet plunger rather than go and worship almighty God, that one would be more important than the other, or they can't even conceive of the idea that we we would be it would be morally required that we gather to do such things. It's a, the idea doesn't even make any sense to them, right? And that's one of the reasons why these things were actually protected, right? So I, so I think that there are some really chilling things related to right to, assemb- right to assemble as an expression of our exercise of the freedom of religion mm-hmm. that are part of the subtext of the public health order and other things. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, too bad. I, I just don't, I think those people do not understand. And it, what, what's even worse is a lot of secular people do not understand the distinction between the freedom of religion and the freedom of worship. Hmm. Right. In the Soviet Union, during the USSR, yeah. people had the freedom of worship. They just right. didn't have the freedom of religion. Right. You couldn't actually be a Christian, but you could go to a church mm-hmm. for an hour a week. You just couldn't, you didn't have the freedom to be a Christian the rest of the week. Hmm. And here, there is not even they don't even keep the freedom of worship sacrosanct. And I think that there are issues with that. Now, I listen, I understand. And like, obviously I'm someone who voluntarily has closed church meetings and complied as much as possible right. with these things. So it's not like I'm like this revolutionary, like, well, I ain't going to do blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But I, I do agree that there is a chilling misunderstanding in our public documents. And now even in our, one of our most recent Supreme court cases concerning the fundamental nature of what it means to be a people that have the right to gather mm-hmm. as yeah. a part of the free exercise of religion. Yeah. So I, th- I think I do think that's important, yeah. but I wouldn't say because I don't want people to be allowed to protest Yeah. that I, in some ways that's a different matter. Right? Yeah. But, but there's, it's true that it's hypocritical. Yeah. Sure. I mm-hmm. think it's fair to point that out. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be against the protests to point that out. Sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Let's, we've got two more questions. So I'm going to do, um, Nick, I'm going to give this one to you and then John will give the last one to you. Great. All right. The vocabulary of real racism was used. I think Nick, you said that maybe in the AMA at some point, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering how Nick defines this and if he would say more. Yeah. I think when people use the word racism, we're, there is not broad public agreement on what we mean. I think that that's also true with other words that we don't even understand that we disagree about. So for example, 
um, one of the words that's becoming very popular right now is the phrase white supremacy, mm-hmm. right? And white supremacy does not mean what people think it means with a lot of the people that are saying it. But part of the reason I think they've chosen that vocabulary is because it has a lot of freight with its old definition. Um, and so in one level, they want to give it a definition that applies it much more broadly, mm-hmm. but they wanted to have the same freight it had when it was like referred to KKK rallies and lynchings and, and church burnings. Right. And, and that's very confusing for a public that doesn't spend all their time learning what the new nomenclature is and its significance for all of us. Mm-hmm. And so the word racism both has, that word has a question of analysis is the thing you're talking about racist or not, or to what extent or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, it has the issue of rhetoric, right? Because, right. because the word racism is also a club, which you can hit people with and that you can use so that you don't have to make an argument. You can just be like, well, it's self-evident it's racist. Um, but then it only applies to some things and not others. And it's just, it's a very imprecisely used word and category. And so when I say real racism, what I just, I just mean literally what that would normally mean in normal English, that, it's a claim of racism that is in fact truly racism, right? And which means you have to define racism. And I would define racism as both um, the, the actual belief that one racial group is inherently inferior to another, which is the formal definition. But I think that it's reasonable to broaden that definition to say that it is, uh, that would include any actions or, um, or other human activity that, makes that the case mm-hmm. or so you, you might not you might not be a racist but you might do things that that act as though or create a reality in which one person gets to be superior to another person mm-hmm. right like, like right. for example one of the studies that people like to quote in terms of implicit bias is the whole like um if you said it a resume you know like resume comparisons that sound black versus that sound white um the white ones tend to get interviews more Right. Mm-hmm. If if that's true, if that's an accurate way of looking at it, that would mean that like there would be what people would call a white a, a measurable white privilege, mm-hmm. right? And to the extent to which that's the case, that has the a, a, a strong racist effect. One race gets to be superior to the other. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that that's what most what some of the new wokeish people kind of mean by white supremacy when they say that. I'm not actually clear. I've I've I mean I've read a whole bunch of stuff people throw that phrase around and I still don't know exactly what people mean by it. I think they mean three or four different things. That's why it's confusing. So I'm still working on what that means. Yeah. That one in the the phrase black bodies, why we say that I still, I think I, I think I'm getting close to understanding that, but I still, I'm still struggling a little bit with that phrase too, Mm -hmm. but I I will, I think we'll get there because there's a lot of text out there. Yeah. Um, But anyway, yeah, I I would say that, that, that discerning whether or not something is actually racism and then rhetorically, understanding am i just getting beat up and bullied here or is it is in fact this race racism in fact happening and therefore my own conscience should bully me into doing something mm-hmm. you know yeah or course me i guess would be a more straightforward word and you would so so nick would you define racism as like the like it's the sort of like personal moral attitude of believing that one race is in some way superior just based on that than another is that like the the way you would tend to define it kind of but i I mean i also like for example if if it's an internal belief then no action can be inherently racist right so like let's say you know what i mean because an action can't have a belief right it can assume a belief 
right? So I would say I would say an action that assumes a racist belief in order to be a legitimate action, mm-hmm. you could argue that the thing itself is racist. I I would think you'd want the word to be that flexible. Because if if race all if the only way reason way you can use the word racist is if you can demonstrate that a person believes literally right, right. that there is an inherent inferiority of one race versus another. And that's not even that takes that takes like nurture out of it too. So like if so, so I, I know some people who believe who believe they're not racist, who actually believe that the the average African American is inferior to the average American white person in certain capacities and abilities and functionalities, but not inherently, not because of their genetics, but just because of the culture that they're brought up in, how many books are read to them when they're a kid, what their vocabulary is mm-hmm. at age four, and so on, and that because there is a functional superiority. White people are superior, but not because, but they're not, but, but I'm not racist because I don't believe that that's inherent to their genetics or whatever, right? I, I would argue that um, that's still like it, you still believe functionally that you can mm-hmm. proceed in believing and expecting right. the average black person to be inferior to the average white person. And, but that gets, I mean, that gets really tricky because. Right. Yeah, and I think because if you if you don't if you're not careful with that, like there's there's science you can't listen to. It gets kind of weird. So I don't, I don't want to pursue it too much, but I think that if you get too narrow in the definition, what I'm trying to say here is if you right. get too narrow yeah. in the definition of racism, then anybody can escape. Almost anyone can escape any accusation of racism and exonerate themselves by holding the definition so narrowly. And I just think that. Yeah, but then you got to come up with a whole bunch of other words that you might be guilty of, right? Like prejudice and bigotry and those kinds of things. And I, I feel like most public pers- persons don't want to expand the vocabulary too much because the public isn't going to track with that expanded vocabulary and their meaning and their claims are going to get lost. So there's a there's a there's a advocacy problem with expanding the vocabulary, but there's an understanding problem with using the same word to do 50 different things. Mm-hmm. And that's a tension that's hard to, it's hard to escape that tension. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. I think that, I mean, I can remember being in high school. I was a part of a group that was, um, it was essentially a support group for minorities at our high school because there were a total of maybe 15 of us. <laughs> um, oh man. And these, so these were things that I was talking about as a teen, as a young person that a lot of my friends weren't because they just weren't, they didn't have to think about it. And so mm-hmm. to me, the notion that those sorts of things could be true, that somebody could think, I'm not a racist at all. I don't think these things, but that the actions mm-hmm. or, or their lack of desire to break down something functionally was carrying itself out in what I call racism, like that, that dynamic, I think is the, like one of the voices that I'm hearing coming out a lot presently in this movement, trying to show people that just because you yourself aren't saying or don't, don't, wouldn't, wouldn't say that you categorically hold these thoughts of inferiority and superiority doesn't mean that it's still not real and not happening. And, and to that, to that point, I like, I think that I agree with you, Nick, that having a broad enough definition of the, of the word is more helpful in being able to talk about it with people. However, I do think that it can also be hurtful in conversations because as soon as you say it, 
you ha- you have to know that there are people who are going to immediately say, no, no, that's not me. And so you yeah, have they to get really defensive. Yeah. And I, which I, I understand that. And like, I, I understand how that would be the, the immediate reaction somebody would have. And so I think that for, for people, and I would include myself in this, who want to have more of these conversations and want to show what has been a reality for a long time, I think I need to be really intentional about defining what I mean, about being gracious with people when I talk to them, with having real conversations with individuals, not just trying to say what I think to a platform, hoping that the right person will not take offense and will read it and change their mind, that I need to be kind in my demeanor as well. I mean, there's just all this other stuff Mm -hmm. that is baked into it that I think allows for real conversation to happen. Yeah. I feel like I want to make a couple of points about this for our listeners, especially people who are part of High Point who are trying to work through some of this stuff. I think it's important to recognize that if, in fact, we are all affected by sin and sin has a certain root of selfishness to it, that we should we should believe that it's relatively predictable to recognize that having an in-group preference yeah. is going to be part of selfishness mm-hmm. and having things our way as well. And so we should expect to be racist, to find, to find racism in ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the reasons why I don't like the implicit association tests, the implicit bias tests yeah. is when I took the, do I, when I took the test about whether or not I have implicit bias against black people, it said I didn't. And I was like, that's a stupid test. <laughs> Cause I, I know myself well enough to know I have all kinds of implicit negative biases about everybody who's not like me in any way. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I don't, I think that's dumb. So I, I, like I, I, I don't, when, if somebody asks me if I'm racist, I say, of course I am. I'm a human being. I don't know if there's any human being that's not racist in a way, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I also, I also like, um, I might, I might say his name wrong, but Ibram, Ibram Kendi uh, is a professor. He's got some books. He's 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 a little bit on the considered on the like. He's not a you know he's not a Republican. Let's just say that much. He's he would be on the political left. But he, one of the arguments he makes is he says, listen, uh, he, he advocates the the phrase anti racism that, that I'm an anti racist, yeah. not just not racist. Mm-hmm. I'm an mm-hmm. anti racist. And he's like, listen, listen, you can be racist and and be an anti racist. He's like because he's like, look, as I read speeches of people in American history, he's like, they they would say racist stuff and anti anti racist stuff in the same paragraph. Mm-hmm. And people evolve, and people aren't one thing. And so, mm-hmm. you can be racist at one moment and anti-racist at another. And it, that's why it's not helpful to label people racists unless they are systemically, unrepentantly racist, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it's important for Christians to feel that way about sin and about people's failings. That, like, I, I think that's a great insight. That, like, there are going to be moments yeah. in my life where I do things that, if somebody pulled me aside and said that's racist, I can be like, yeah, yeah, that was that was kind of in a way that was at least. And I need, I want to, I need to, I can repent of that without fearing being forever canceled. Right. I was just going to say, cancel culture has to be completely, like, we have to get rid of that in this conversation. Yeah. I don't know if you saw this, but one of the largest churches, the largest church in Alabama, a pastor by (sighs) name, Chris Hodges, Church of the Highlands, I think it's called. He liked a couple of tweets um, by a Turning Point USA guy, Kirk. Kurt, whatever his name is. Um, and basically it was like, they showed a picture of Donald Trump with um, Muhammad Ali and um, uh, who's the lady who stayed on the bus in Birmingham, uh, Rosa, Parks. Rosa Parks. And then they showed a, a picture of the progressive governor of Virginia in blackface in the eighties, both pictures from the eighties and like, Hey, here's what your Republican president was doing in the eighties. And here's what like this progressive governor was doing in the eighties, you know, 
basically making the implicit point that Democrats aren't always on the right side of race and Republicans aren't as bad on it as people want you to think pointing out a certain kind of hypocrisy. Now, of course there's a huge sample bias there. You know, you take one yeah. picture, Donald Trump, one right. picture of this, right? Yeah. Like that's not an argument, right? Yeah. Um, and so this guy, this guy, Chris Hodges, he liked those two posts. So he's scrolling through his feed. He hits like on those two posts because he's part of evangelicals for Trump. He's part of that group, right? Yeah. Everyone knows this, right? And, but he has two campuses of his churches in two high schools that are predominantly black neighborhoods in Birmingham that draw thousands of people that employ a black preaching pastor, uh-huh. right? And they they have a clinic where they do all kinds of medical and other support work in public housing projects. And the city like kicked them out of the high schools and stopped like op- like partnering with their medical clinic and other services they offer to the poor. Like they canceled the church. Yeah. Cuz cuz this guy didn't write these posts. He just liked them. He liked them. Yeah. And somebody pointed out and said it was insensitive. But listen, insensitive used to mean, hey, you might not want to do that again. Right. Right. That word is becoming to mean we can cancel your organization. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We can destroy you. It's a it's literally a thought crime. Yeah. Which is also really chilling that they got kicked out of two high schools. Because if you can, as a school, choose what group can meet inside of you relative to the per- your perceived belief about the politics yeah. of that group. Mm-hmm. That is very chilling that you can you can do that with a public space. That's I mean I I can't see how that's not illegal. So anyway, I, I just think yeah. that like th- these are like this is getting really touchy, and I think that mm-hmm. if we if we increase the stinks about how we're going to bash your head in if you say the wrong thing, like I don't see how this can do anything but create chaos and anger and hatred and yeah, complete and polarization gonna, well, of opinion. Yeah, and it's going to shut down any kind of real conversation. Right, exactly. Which is, gonna, right. Which is the which you, is the opposite of what we need to be able to happen. Yes, right. And you might get change. Like the people who who like want to like crush everybody else, they you might achieve change. That it's possible, but it, without without getting everybody on board, you're not going to get the right change because you're going to get whatever mm-hmm. change you can get, whatever change right. you can muscle. Mm-hmm. But that's not going to. In order to succeed, we have to in, engage almost everyone, or at least the large percentage of the white population. Right. Which includes like half the country that voted for Trump. Yep. Right. Like it was a very large proportion of America. And I get emails from these people too, who are like, don't let them bully you, Nick. And like, mate, you know, don't, don't be like destroyed by the thought police. Like there's plenty of people who are like, who feel that way. Yeah. And my goal is be like, okay, listen, we can talk about these things very deeply and if we follow the Christian principles that God demands that we follow, we can grow. All of us can grow and we can come up with real solutions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, um, and there are people out there publicly speaking, some who are, some who are Christians, some who are not Christians, who I think are trying to do that. And I, I just think as Christians, we need to refuse certain things and embrace certain things, you know? And yeah. Yeah. I just, obviously I just have to say on that. Right. But the, I mean, I think the thing that also I, I want to mention is that as we've said in other episodes, like we're not, we're not going to get to like solve this issue in 20 minutes of addressing one question on this episode. We are doing right. things, continuing to do things as a church to move towards unity at, for our church on these issues, on these topics, in these conversations, listening to lots yeah. of different people. And so yeah, we want to continue to do that. Yeah. I, one of the things that I have not done very well is 
I don't realize what other people's lives have been like in relationship to race very well. Especially, I know this is going to sound really weird, but in some ways, especially white people. Because like I grew up near an army base where half my friends were black, half my school was black. Um, the cross-section of the sort of black people I hung out with were all officers' kids. So they were like growing up in two-parent homes, doing better than me in school, right? Like um, all these people were dating each other. Like it, like it wasn't... It wasn't weird. In fact, the, the black people were kind of higher class people sometimes in my school because it was like white dairy farmers mm-hmm. and then army officers. Yeah. Mm. Right. And so like a lot of times like the black kids in my school are like more articulate, better learned, like they came from be- like just quote, quote, better stock, like in terms of like how they hit, they were being raised, Ex- extremely respectful, you know, saluted the flag, like, you know, the kind of things that like pe- white people complain about with guys like Colin Kaepernick, like you couldn't make so it was weird for me and then i went to college and it was like tons of black people from the city mm-hmm. and it was a totally different experience and like i sang in a gospel choir we toured them and you know we 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 just did all kinds of stuff i was the godchild of a like an african-american kid i was there for the birth and like because the dad had abandoned the, the woman and like i mean i just had all these like really interesting experiences so like at the march on sunday when there was one speaker who she's like she's like how many of you have had a black person to your house for dinner. And I, I'm, my first impulse was, what an idiotic question. Mm. There's no one here. Or you're going to get, I mean, they're certainly not going to raise their hand, but like, I'm sure almost no one here who's, who came to a march yeah. has not had a black person in their house for dinner. I, mean, I had dozens of, I mean, it's, it's yeah. crazy. It was like 45% of the people raised their mm-hmm. hand that they had literally never sat down to dinner with a black person in their whole life. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh man. Because I tend to think of myself as a typical white person in race relations. That I don't know that much. I haven't had that many experiences. That I got to be really careful about what I say because I don't really get it and blah, 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 blah. Right? I need to learn more. And But then I sit down with people and I sit down with black leaders are like, you're not normal. And then I watch, I look at people raising their hand like who's ever had dinner with a black person? It's like not that many. And I you know, and that was 40, 40% or so of people who went to the protest march. Right. Can you imagine what that is for the public at large? So that's just, that's wild. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things I need to recognize is that there are a lot, there's a lot of white racism out there that I, I would never do. But I spent years and years and years and years of my life with African-Americans and in their spaces, spaces where I'm the minority, in those spaces, mm-hmm. listening to them talk, hearing mm-hmm. their concerns, having lunch with black pastors, listening to that kind of stuff. And it's like, it really has affected me a lot more than I, yeah. I knew. Yeah. You know, I, I still, I mean, I still am not like prepared to do what I need to do. But I, I sometimes I forget how, how privileged I am to have been through all of that. Mm-hmm. And then to be able to interact in these spaces. Whereas a, a lot of white people just, they've just been going about their lives they don't understand what the big deal is, why people can't handle their lives and why they think everything's unjust. Mm-hmm. And they are genuinely confused. Yeah. And and they are shamed and attacked for it and I feel for them. Yeah, I think this is the, the like this gets at I mean when you were saying Nick that if we were to continue to have these polarizing conversations, we might get change from a systemic way and in a public, uh, public service way, but we're not going to get the real change that we need. Like, I think that that March is probably a really good microcosm of that sort of a thing that you might have a bunch of people showing up to a March, but their personal lives, 
they've never had a black person over to their home before. And I, I remember yeah. talking with, when I was doing ministry in the Twin Cities, there was a pastor of a multicultural church who came and spoke with our staff team. He was talking about doing multicultural ministry. And he said something about like, you know, if your personal life doesn't reflect this, why do yeah. you think your ministry would? And we, we, I mean, we had hard conversations that followed on our staff team of people who like just hadn't thought about these things and weren't willing to make the personal changes yet. And, and, and when you talk about these sort, these sorts of white people who just haven't had those experiences yet, and you say you feel for them, like I've had more conversations with people like that in the past few years. And I, I have had to grow compassion and grace for like, both my my dad is and is an immigrant, and my mom's mother was an immigrant. Our worldview was very different than most of the people I grew up with, and and I can't just mm-hmm. fault people for that. And I can't mm-hmm. just like I, I need to understand. You don't know what you don't know, but but I want to have a conversation with you and talk about it. And I don't just want to cancel you. I don't just want to be a jerk to you. It has to require mm-hmm. personal response or personal relationships for some of the real, true, good change that we want to happen. Now, I also think that we want yeah. reform as well. Like I, I don't think it's one or the other but yeah i think especially that immigrant mentality is huge and i don't think people understand it very well yeah like the what gets drilled into you if you're an immigrant is you need to learn the game here so that you can win it that's what gets drilled into you like hmm. you need to like these are the gates of power this is how you succeed this is the game you have to work twice as hard as everybody else to succeed and I mean, that, that got drilled into me by my mom, who's mm-hmm. an Italian immigrant. And um, people can say like, well, yeah, but you were still successful because of white privilege. You, I, I don't, I'm, who knows? Mm-hmm. Maybe. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I'm sure that was part of it. But like that, you know, when you're a white kid in a school that's 95% white, you don't think about how you have a break over black kids you've never met. Right. What you know is, is that you're competing with another 180 white kids yeah. who want to beat the crap out of you and be successful. And there's only so many slots. Yeah. And so you're fighting against them. And so then when you get to your position, what, if you're quote successful and somebody says, well, you're only there because you didn't have to compete against black people. You're like, what? Yeah. Are you kidding me? Like I, I competed against hundreds and thousands of other people to get to where I am, to mm-hmm. be the cream of the crop, to study 14 hours a day, to be this person. Now you're telling me, but they're partly right. I mean, mm-hmm. part of, part of the possible competitive number of competitive people that could have been involved was diminished mm-hmm. by certain things mm-hmm. in the culture, right? right? But like, you know, the person who just won the NBA finals doesn't want to hear that because not every basketball team in the world got to compete in the NBA that their prize is meaningless. You know, like it, like it there's all these like like strange idiosyncrasies and like minor arguments, but like yeah. immigrants don't like I was not raised to think like an established family or even politically like connected. It's like you get your crap in order, you let these other kids watch TV and screw around while you pass them by, by working harder than them. And that's how you succeed in this world. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm just relating a lot to that. (laughs) Yeah. And when you come from that immigrant mentality, see people look at me and they're like, Oh, you're white. You're you're like from some established family. you probably have English background. And on my dad's side, that's true. Right. Like my, like my dad is descendant from William Bradford Mm -hmm. of the Plymouth colony. Like I have a side of my family. Like my dad was the first man in like, I think six generations that didn't go to Cornell, which is an Ivy league school. Oh dang. Right. And on my mom's side, she was the first person to get a college degree. Yeah. Wow. Ever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My, my grandfather was illiterate until in the Somalian war an army officer taught him to read. I thought that's, that's the split in my family. Mm-hmm. And 
on my on my dad's side, yeah, there's this very established, right? But on my mom's side, it was a immigrant. My mom controlled our household. So when you're raised as an immigrant, you just understand race issues differently because you're kind of like, yeah, so what? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, of course the majority is going to hold you back. Of course everybody's going to try to stop you. Of course everything's. That's the whole point of why you behave this way. Like why you. But but I, what I think it does is it helps us succeed, but it also it like it's it makes it psychologically difficult to feel deep empathy for people who are kind of like, yeah, everything was against me. There's, I had no chance. And you're like, are you sure? Hmm. Which, which pushes you back to these arguments of, is it oppression or pathology that holds people back in America and which came first, the chicken or the egg, or in what sense is what feed into what now, which is at the heart of a lot of, a lot of the, the disagreement and people can't even get to that because there's, they're still on the level of, am I a racist or not? Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Anyway, I don't know if that was helpful for people listening. I. Yeah. Well, and I think there's too, lots of different American experiences exactly, related to yes. how mm-hmm. you see this. Yeah. Even if you're white or mixed race or whatever. Right. Right. There are so many you know? complexities that get into it, and it, again, like that's why I think it's just so important to have actual conversations with real people, because you're not going to understand them until you do. Yeah, perspective mm-hmm. is so different. Yeah. And you can there's so many valid perspectives. Like I was listening to somebody recently who said that depending on how you do the math, when cotton was king during slavery, the economics of slavery touched 50% of the American econ- economy. Now, of course, that's a very generous statistic because what you're saying is everything that the economics like rippled out to was right. all connected to it. And so it's a very that like, you're really pushing to expand to 50%. So you could be like, look, slavery affected 50% of the American economy. And you'd be like, yeah. That's only half. Like depending on your perspective. Right, right. You you could look at that very differently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's true for so many things mm-hmm. in our in our culture, you know, and and especially related to race and justice as well. So yeah. uh, if you don't if you don't if your goal is to win, you can't win. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because you can't mm-hmm. you can't create the human community necessary for it and just and I, I just I really want to caution like white people to be too flippant about how sometimes we don't, we don't really get what's even happening. But I also want to encourage people of color that be careful about how you behave as you come into the ascendancy. Hmm. Right. Like, like in terms of cultural speaking power, you're not a minority. Like you're in the ascendancy, even as a minority and you have the power now to attack and hurt people. And you got to be careful about how you use that, whether you're going to, you're going to be any better than the people who oppressed you. Mm -hmm. Because if you look, if you, if you don't believe you're special, if you look at human history and you look at what happens when people who are oppressed get power over their oppressors, they are, they are almost always as bad or worse in what they do to the people who they perceive used to be their oppressors. Mm -hmm. And so when you come into the ascendancy, no matter what, whether you're like a young person at a church and you finally get to run the church and you think the old people have been doing a bad job and now you're in the ascendancy or whether as a racial voice, you're now in the ascendancy. You need to be, you need to be so careful yeah. because the, the likelihood of the, the natural human tendency is to be as bad or worse than the people who oppressed you. Yeah. yeah. All right, John, I'm going to move to the final question. I'm going to give it to you. Mm-hmm. All right. Ready? Ready. I am a longtime follower of Christ. Between the COVID crisis, racial tensions, and life as an isolated, stay-at-home mom, I am struggling with hope. What advice or direction would you give? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I think um, I think one of the first things to to recognize is that that's um, that's an okay feeling to feel, you know. And I think I think in the midst of in the midst of all that's happening, it it can like there can be a certain amount of guilt that comes with that comes with feeling things that are that are negative or feeling pressed or feeling um, right feeling things that you perceive as like okay this isn't like you know I believe in Jesus so I should I should think everything is all good all the time right um, and I think it's I think it's an okay place to be to to I mean one of the one of the buzzwords right now in this current moment and I think I think a buzzword for for a good reason is the buzzword of lament and I think that is an that's an okay thing to to experience in this moment is this sense of the world is not what it is supposed to be and there are so many ways that it's broken there's so many ways that it's difficult there's so many ways that that it isn't the thing it's supposed to be and that's that it's it's okay to recognize and to say those things um but I do think the the direction to head is that um, even in the midst of even in the midst of the feelings that are that are at times so low and are so despondent and especially like looking at the circumstances around us can see so can seem so without hope like ultimately ultimately even in those places our hope is like eschatological like it is it is focused on the end and there's i think it's it's helpful to look at um there are a lot of psalms where this is the case where like mm-hmm. david is writing about how when i look around like i see enemies and no matter like everything that i try to do i feel pushed back on and attacked and like i'm gonna die but ultimately like god you're going to come you're gonna judge the wicked you're gonna put everything right and so that's the place um, consistently where he finds hope. So I think, um, that can be, that can be a place. A, I mean, yeah. I think there's, I don't think that needs to be the only place. Like there, there is hope for the ways that God is working in our world right now. Um, but I think ultimately our hope, our hope does come from the fact that we can say, we can, we can look at these, these things that are around us and not say, oh, this is, you know, this is the best it's going to get. And I just need to try to do whatever I can to, to deal with it as best as I can. No, we can, we can look at the things that are around us and say, alongside that, come Lord Jesus, we can't wait for you to come. And mm-hmm. so I think a, a place that this can turn into hope is to, is to, is to examine our, the things that are around us and turn that into worship as we turn towards God. And as we say, I can't wait for you to be here. Mm-hmm. I can't wait for you to set this stuff right. Um, I think that's the, that's some of the work that needs to be done in order to, in order to, to move in the direction of hope. I think one of the other biblical categories is exile that gets mm-hmm. used in the old Testament, but also you see it in, for example, first Peter, he refers to the people as an exile, right? Which is, you know, you're not in your home. This is where you live. It's where you, it's, I mean, it's where you live. It's where you have to make your home. It's where your family has to continue, but it's not your true home. Mm-hmm. Right. You know? And I, th- I think Christians should see themselves. We're also called ambassadors in the mm-hmm. Bible. That is people who not just take a message somewhere, but go live in another place as though that was your home, but your citizenship is really somewhere else. And you're trying mm-hmm. to make the place where you went to more like your home kind of, kind of mm-hmm. like the best of what is in your home. You'd like to be part of this place too. And you can bring that word to them, but it's not your home. And so I, th- I think recognizing that we try to make the world better not because like that's our hope, but because we 
we belong to something better already. Right. And we want to, we want to bring the truths of that kingdom to this world to improve it as much as we can. Yeah. Right. There's, there's, I just, I, I wrote this in an essay yesterday. I don't see any teaching in the new Testament that um, purports to expect a triumph of the church in transforming culture. Mm-hmm. I just don't, I mean, I, I know it's, it's nice to talk about that. It's exciting to talk about it. I, I don't see that in, in the Bible at all. Yeah. And so I think that it's important that as we pursue as much cultural transformation as we possibly can to recognize that we are at least always a preservant and a seasoning that we can bring out the best flavor that is there mm-hmm. in a broken world mm-hmm. and we can preserve it from becoming more rotten than it is. And that is really good. Yeah. And if in addition to that, we can make things perfect. Well, great. <laughs> but, but Christian teaching in the scriptures does not purport that that's going to be likely until right. the people of the world are all filled with the virtue of Christ. Right. It doesn't matter what system you have or what even technologies you have to support that system until the people are virtuous. There is no system that makes things utopian. Mm-hmm. And so until there is a universal revival, there will never be a utopia. Mm-hmm. And that's why we preach Christ first Yeah, because the only hope for this world and the work of being an ambassador of the kingdom is both the unseen revival. But in the midst of that, in the midst of preaching Christ, we still can be a preservant and and a seasoning to make the world taste as good as it can mm-hmm. and to keep it from becoming any more rancid. Yeah. We can provide that service and do, though many people don't think that we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, part, and, and a big part of that is just the inherent virtue of Christians. Like as we love our families and go to work and try to be productive and seek to love other people and step in when their lives are coming apart or when they need help and encouraging people who are discouraged in all those basic unseen and unsung things, mm-hmm. we are the unseen preservant of many things. Yeah. You know? Yes. Yeah. Um, I can relate to many of the, like, I have felt a lot of these tensions in the past couple of weeks. I've been isolated because I might've been exposed to the virus. So I felt even more isolated than I had in the past. So I think another thing too, is like when John, you were saying to this person who wrote this, like, these are okay things to feel to also know that you're not alone. in. And I think that it's easy when we Mm -hmm. feel these things to think we're the only one and there's must be something wrong with us, but that's not the case. I've struggled with hope, especially in the past few weeks. Um, the Psalms has been, um, that's where I've been turning to John. You said that as well. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah, I think knowing that there are others who are doing these things there, who are feeling these ways as well. And you're not the only person who's struggling with these is a good truth to remember. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Thanks to everyone who wrote these questions. Thank you, John and Nick for sharing your responses. Mm-hmm. And we will... You're welcome. We will uh, be with you next time, I suppose. Another short podcast. Yeah. All right, right. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. 
We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.